I'm very thankful to be here before you this morning because the Presbytery of North Alabama, Providence Presbytery, did call me to plant a church in South Huntsville. And the Lord has called us to plant this new church in South Huntsville so that we can reach this area with the gospel. It's about 30,000 people, this area is South Huntsville. It's close to the Tennessee River, if you're familiar with the geography of Huntsville. So about 30,000 people and just a couple of gospel churches. There's no PCA churches in this area of Huntsville. And so we feel honored and very thankful that the Lord has called us to this work to lift up the good news of Jesus in this part of South Huntsville. And I think that's really why Dave invited me here this morning is to ask you for help. Please pray for us. If we don't have people praying for the success of our work there, I think we'll probably get by. Uh, I don't think anything, you know, there, I, hopefully there won't be any catastrophes happening. But if people will pray for us and remember us when they go before the Lord, I think we will really see him move and bring people into his kingdom and grow people in Christ there. And so please pray for us, and I'd love to talk to you more about our church plant. We haven't even started worship yet. We've just been meeting as a core group since January, and Lord willing, this fall, we're going to get to begin worship. And so thank you for your prayers, and again, stop me afterwards if you want to know more about what we're doing in South Huntsville. Excuse me, what the Lord is doing in South Huntsville. This morning, I want to talk to you about the book of Acts And I'm going to read the first 14 verses from the book of Acts. I know it says 1 through 5 there, I think, in the bulletin. But I'm going to read 1 through 14. But I'm really going to focus on verse 4. And so let me invite you to listen with me as I read God's Word. This is what it says. And I'm going to be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. It's, It's a lot like the ESV, if that's what you have, or the NIV. But... This is the Christian Standard Bible. It says in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he'd given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he'd said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood before him. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven, this same Jesus who's been taken from you, from you into heaven will come in the same way that you've seen him going into heaven. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. 
When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying, Peter and John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They were all continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would teach us in and of ourselves we are ignorant about you In our flesh, we are ignorant about ourselves and about how to live in the world. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would teach us in Jesus Christ by your Holy Spirit. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, I don't think it's controversial to say that we live in difficult times. These are hard times that we live in. And I know maybe because we're middle class or upper upper middle class, uh, you know, people will tell us that uh, things should not be hard for us, that we have enough education and enough money, that life really shouldn't be very difficult, but we know that's not true. We live in, in, in difficult times, and hard times. I think someone mentioned, I think Dave mentioned Ukraine and prayed for Ukraine. We live in a world that's torn apart by war. We have been told that because of all the progress that society has made, that we shouldn't really be fighting anymore, but still wars keep happening. And things that we thought we'd put behind us as a world, like the type of violence we're seeing in Europe right now, we thought that was ancient history, you know, way behind us. And here it is happening again, the world torn apart by war. And this is very relevant because the book of Acts speaks directly to a world that was torn torn apart by world too. We live in a world that in some ways is very disconnected. People feel disconnected. There's an epidemic of loneliness. You've you've maybe read these articles that people are more lonely now than maybe they ever have been before. And people also are bent in on themselves. We We live in a time where we can't stop thinking about our own anxiety and our own fears and sort of driving ourselves crazy. There's books you can read for this and blogs you can read to try to help you. This is the world that we live in. And Acts, the book of Acts, speaks directly to these challenges that we have. And we we have challenges in the church as well. Some parts of the church are obsessed with the theoretical and obsessed with the intellectual. Some parts of the church, and we're very good at thinking about God and keeping it all in our, in our brain, but we don't know how to connect the theoretical or theology with just normal people and normal life. We don't know how to connect the bar stool with being baptized in the name of Jesus. And there's also a lot of confusion in the church about what the institutional church really is for and what we're supposed to be doing. In some parts of the church, the church is sort of like a social service organization that's there to fix all the problems in society, but there's no preaching of the truth. No one wants to tell the truth about who Jesus is or what you find in the Bible. And the book of Acts speaks to all these issues and all these challenges that we face both in the world and right here in the church. And I especially want to focus this morning from the book of Acts on verse 4. It says in verse 4, While Jesus was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he'd said, You've heard me speak about. 
just these first 14 verses in the book of Acts that I read, it's sort of a prologue to this book called Acts. And you, you know what a prologue is, those Netflix shows that you watch. They usually begin with a recap, you know, do you want to watch the recap or not? Well, Acts doesn't give you that choice. You have to watch the recap here in the beginning. What is he recapping here in the beginning of the book of Acts? Well, the end of the Gospel of Luke. Luke was a doctor, and he wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And the book of Acts begins with a recap of the, of the very end of Luke. And this recap is essentially, we'll look at the end of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus died on a cross, and then he was buried and then he rose again, and then he ascended into heaven. That's how Luke ends. And Luke, in the beginning of Acts, just wants to remind us of all those details. This would have been very important to the first Christians because Christianity had already begun to spread all over the Mediterranean world. And people were asking questions like, how did all this start? People at the, at, the, at the time that Luke was written had known about Christianity for some time, and they wanted to know, what's the origin story of Christianity? Where did it all come from? And that's what Luke wants to tell us. And it says that the apostles, in verse 14, and some women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, they were in this room, and they were praying together. They were waiting. And Jesus, they were doing this because Jesus had commanded them, look, don't leave Jerusalem. You need to stay in Jerusalem. You need to wait for the Father's promise, which is something that he had already talked to them about. Those are the three things. To wait and to pray. That's a theme in the book of Acts. That the first Christians, they could have run from persecution because by this time in the Roman Empire, Christianity was a, was a known thing. People knew about Christianity and people didn't like it. And you could lose your job. It would be very difficult to find a spouse, a husband or a wife, if you were a Christian, because people didn't want to marry Christians. It was difficult to find a job, and you can very well lose your job if you were a Christian. It was easy, it was easy to want to run and hide if you were a Christian. And so God wanted them to know, Jesus wanted them to know, look, wait, wait, don't run, don't, don't run away from Jerusalem. I want you to stay in Jerusalem and I want you to pray. And that's what they were doing, to wait and to pray. This is how Christianity spread in the Roman Empire. It wasn't by military might. That's not how Christianity spread. You can find other religions in the world, and the way that they had influence in their culture, the way that some religions in the world spread and had influence there was by force, by coercion, by military might, you will believe in our God, or else I find your lack of faith disturbing, right? This is what, I just watched Star Wars with my kids yesterday, right? <laughs> this is how some religions spread, by force. But Christianity wasn't like this. It's what made it very unique. It conquered the Mediterranean without an army. Now, eventually, armies and countries wanted to saddle up with Christianity, and to make Christianity their official religion of their army. And this has happened throughout the years. But this, is, this was not how Christianity began. It did not spread by military might. It spread by the living God. And that's really the, the whole point of what I want to say this morning, is that the power of Christianity is the living God. 
the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's not complicated philosophical arguments. It's not by governmental or uh, civil force that we're going to make you do this. It is the living God that, that is the power of the church and not these other things. And this living God, he is the Father. It says in verse 4 that Jesus says, I want you to wait for the promise of the Father. This living God is a Father, and he's the Father who promised. He's the Father who makes promises. Christianity is based on promises that God made in the Old Testament thousands of years before Jesus, hundreds of years before Jesus. God predicted and prophesied and promised the events of Jesus' death and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. God is a God who's sovereign over all these things. God predicted in the Old Testament, remember what he told Abraham? He told Abraham, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God came and appeared to Abraham and said, through you, Abraham, I'm going to take this salvation to all the peoples of the world. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, who lived hundreds of years before Jesus, he said, and it will be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. God, the living God, is the Father who promises. And he always keeps his promise. This is how Christianity spread so rapidly. Because God had promised these things hundreds and thousands of years before, and God always keeps his promises. I mean, it's extraordinary the way that Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire without a military. How can, how can you explain the growth of Christianity from 12 apostles and a few women to a few thousand to tens of thousands to even more spread out across the known world? Like, how does that happen? You and your Bible study, and then in 50 years, Things have gone from Jerusalem all the way to Italy and Rome. And what the Bible says, that's only possible because the Father had promised that these things would be so. And he's the Father because he is sovereign, and he's the Lord of history. The apostles come to him, and in verse 6 they say, Hey, so now are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus basically says, This is a distraction. This is distracting you. This is not for you to worry about. You haven't appointed the times and the periods. That's God's job. That's the Father's job. He's the one whose promises are coming to fulfillment. He's the one who's Lord of history. And he's the one who will worry about the times and the periods of whatever might happen to Israel when Jesus comes back. You don't need to worry about this. This is a distraction. The living God is the Father who's appointed the times and the periods. He says to us that we don't need to worry about these things. And, you know, the early church was able to endure such suffering and persecution because they believed that the living God was this Father that cared for them and that loved them. You might, have, you might think that because Christianity spread so quickly that the book of Acts is full of, you know, stories of victory on every page, and there's not much opposition, and the apostles just show up, and everyone just loves what they're going to hear, 
and everything is just hunky-dory for the first Christians. Of course, those of you who've read the book of Acts know that the people suffered and sacrificed greatly. It was hard to be a Christian. How did they keep going? How did they persevere? It was because they knew the living God who was sovereign over history, who had turned the crucifixion of Jesus into good news for the world, and he could turn the stoning of Paul into good news for the world too. The living God is the Father, and he's also Jesus. The living God is the Father, and he's also Jesus. This is the fundamental message of Christianity, that Jesus is Lord. Five different times in verses 1 through 14, the commands or the instruction or the teaching or the speaking of Jesus is mentioned. And it's like when your mother has to tell you something five times. It's because you need to hear it, apparently, five times. And, and because it's very important. This is important for you to know. And the same is true in the Bible. The same is true in Acts 1 through 14. Jesus is Lord because he's the one that has the authority to command us. Not everyone you meet on the street has the authority to command you. And if you start treating random people that way, that will lead to a very unhealthy life. But Jesus has the authority to command us because he is the Son of God. He's divine. He's infinite and eternal and unchangeable. And in the early church, there was a tendency in churches there, because many of them had come from Judaism, there was a tendency that when you know, so-and-so couldn't find a husband or couldn't find a wife because they were a Christian. But there were plenty of people willing to marry them if they were just Jewish. There was a tendency to say, you know, Christian, my faith in Jesus maybe not as important as I thought it was. What I really need is a wife or a husband. There was a tendency in the early church to leave Jesus behind and just to go back to Judaism because it was hard to follow Christ. And so in the midst of this, Luke is reminding us, God is reminding us, that Christianity is fundamentally about Jesus being Lord. We can't love the Bible and leave Jesus behind. Jesus and the good news of the gospel, it's on every page. And if we think we can love the Bible and love coming to church, but leave devotion to the good news of Jesus behind, this just won't work. It's not Christianity. It, it, it's something else, kind of a, the Diet Coke version of Christianity, maybe, that tastes similar, but it's just not the same thing. The living God is the, is the life and power of the church, and he's the Father, and he's also Jesus, because he has the authority to command us, and he can command us, and we can listen to his commands and obey them, because he's the one that suffered for us. It says in verse 3 that, after he had suffered, Jesus is the one that suffered where? In Jerusalem. He suffered on the cross as a substitute, a substitute for us. He got what we deserve, and we get what he deserves. He took our sins onto him on the cross, and he gives us his status of righteous and a true son of God. And he did this because he suffered on the cross. And it's because he gives this to us that we can go to him and listen to him. We don't have to be afraid of his commands anymore. You know, the, the law of God, Jesus commanding you to do things, 
it's sort of like the biggest guy on the other team in football, that you don't want to go near this guy. He's the biggest guy on the other team. Uh, you know, when he's on the field, you stay on the other side of the field. And that's what the law of God is like, the commands of God, with, if you're not a Christian. They're just terrifying. I remember when I wasn't a Christian, and when someone would talk about, well, you know, God thinks you really ought to uh, not date this type of person, or, you know, God really thinks you ought to honor him with your schoolwork. I just thought, I don't want to think about that. That just makes me sad and depressed to think about the different things that God wants me to do. But when Jesus fulfills the law and he forgives us for all the times that we've broken the law, that, that terrible uh, eight-foot you know, football player on the other side that we were afraid of, I don't want to go near this person, now he's on our team and he takes his jersey off and he comes onto our team and God's commands actually become something we can delight in and be happy about. And we know that I'm not trying to obey Jesus to earn my way into heaven. Jesus has earned my way into heaven for me. He did it. I can't do it. And now he promises me that his ways are the best ways. And if I will obey him, uh, it will be life for me, life for my family and life for my community. So the living God, he is the Father and he is Jesus. And he's also the Spirit. The Spirit is the living God. It's the Spirit that's the power of the church. And the Spirit is the power of the church, both as an institution and, and as an organism. You know, in certain parts of the church in early Christianity, the Spirit had been poured out. And because of that, it had exploded creativity in the church. And people were ready to do missions and to go and give their lives for Christ. And because the Spirit was active in the church broadly, it caused them to be suspicious of any kind of authority figures in the church. And this has always been an impulse in Christianity, that because the Spirit is given to everyone, people become suspicious when someone stands up and says, well, I'm a, I'm a pastor, and I want to be the pastor of the church, and I actually think God has called me to this, and, I, and the Spirit has given me a role here too, and I want to teach. The institutional church shouldn't be our enemy. You know, you've heard that saying that, you know, I don't like the institutional church, but I love Jesus. And you see this here in Jesus' instruction to the apostles, the role of the apostles in Acts 1.14. The apostles, they're basically the institutional church. And it's Jesus who gives the Spirit, not just to people as individuals out there to go be creatively active in his kingdom, but Jesus gives the Spirit to the, to the pastors and teachers and elders and deacons in a church, like the physical structure of it. But it's not just the institution. It's also the organism. Remember, God promised to Abraham that he was going to give this blessing to all people. And God had said through Jesus, I will not leave you as orphans. The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. The living God is the Spirit. And the Spirit has been given to all people who believe in Jesus. And that means it's not just a spiritual elite number of people who have the Holy Spirit. It's every sinner that believes in Jesus. I remember when I first became a Christian, this was at the University of Alabama way back in 1999. 
And when I became a Christian then, there was a movement on campus that when you became a Christian, you didn't really have the Spirit yet. You had to go and fast for 40 days and then burn all your non-Christian CDs. And then, you know, there were 10 other things you had to do. And if you could do all these things, then the Spirit would finally come on you. You would finally have the Holy Spirit. But this can't be true simply because of who God is. God is Father and Son and Spirit, not just to some elite Navy SEAL-type Christian, but to everyday, ordinary sinners who have believed in Jesus, God is Father and Son and Spirit too. And man, that's, that is good news. This morning, if you feel tired and you feel like you just haven't made it as a Christian, that you've failed again and again and again, you have to keep asking God to forgive you. You have to keep turning from your sin and turning back to Jesus. That is, that is uh, the perfect soil that the Holy Spirit works in. If that's you, overwhelmed by your own sinfulness, running to Jesus, praying for him to transform you, you have the Spirit. God is the living God who is Father and Son and Spirit. And it's the Spirit that empowers us to bear witness. Here in Fort Payne and where I am in Southside, God in three persons the best analogy I've ever heard of this is the, you know, in order to have love, God, in 1 John, the Bible says God is love. He is love. In order to have love, you need more than one person. Side note, this is what's wrong with the love yourself movement. You can't love yourself according to God. Because God needs three persons in order to be love. You're just one person. God is Father and Son and Spirit. He's the lover, the Father, and the beloved, the Son, and the bond of love between the two, which is the Holy Spirit. And that, that, that emptiness you feel of, oh, I could just feel loved. If you could love yourself enough to quench that thirst you have, to be loved, then you would be God. But I don't have to tell you that you're not God. <laughs> you don't have to tell me that either. It's the living God who is love, the fullness of love in himself. And he's still that. Um, he's still that in Fort Payne. He gives pr- protection to those who are in danger. He is a refuge from the oppressor. And we, when we compare him to everything else, we can rightly say that we have nothing good besides him. Lord, you are our portion and our cup of blessing, you hold our futures in your hand, and the boundary lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. Indeed, we have a beautiful inheritance in the living God who is the power of the church. And this is where the Holy Spirit wants to deal with us and ask us some questions. I'll just ask you, where are you today? Where are you on all this? I I couldn't leave without asking you about your own soul. God doesn't want to leave us with just a a theoretical knowledge of all these things. Are you tired of striving after happiness and just 
one more vacation, a little more sex, buying a few more things. Are you just exhausted by trying to be happy that way? Have you seen how empty it is to try to find happiness and all those things? Have you compared everything in this world that you could have to the living God and found everything in this world to be just empty? If, if I'm frank, if I compare even the best things in my life, the best things in my life that are good, good things, have you compared those good things to the Father and to the Son and to the Spirit? God's invitation to us is to obey Jesus. If you're weak and weary and sick and sore, if you're, if you're, if you're weary and, and weighed down, Jesus' invitation is that we obey him. We obey him who suffered in Jerusalem for sinners and that we wait for the Spirit. And when we do, we have the Spirit in Christ. We will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray that that would be true for us, and not just for us, but for our neighbors and for, our, for the great state of Alabama. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we look to you for life and breath and for everything. And we confess to you that this world is empty when we compare it to you, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. We need you, Jesus, to lift our eyes from our marriages, from, lift our eyes from being single, lift our eyes from our careers, from our, even our children. Lift our eyes to you, Jesus, that you might assure us that our salvation is in heaven, and you've put it so high up and secure for us, Heavenly Father, that temptations can't take it down and all our failings and flaws and shortcomings can't get it off that top shelf because you have secured it for us, Heavenly Father. That you might give power to your church so that we could be witnesses here and in the whole world. And we pray that you would make that real for us and for our neighbors. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.